Hello baseball fans, welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason. We talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 30th day of October 2017 on a hill overlooking the historic Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. You know, I'm going to tell you a little secret here is a lot of times when I say I'm recording this from the Sully Baseball Studio overlooking the historic Rose Bowl, I'm in my house in Pasadena, but my house doesn't really look over the historic Rose Bowl. But today, right now, I'm looking at the historic Rose Bowl from a hill. I'm now overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. So if I were to ever have enough, if I were to make enough money doing Sully Baseball... I would build my studio right here so I can overlook the historic Rose Bowl. Which is kind of odd when you think about it because this is a baseball podcast. And I've said many times, I don't really follow football. You know, UCLA plays in the Rose Bowl. I couldn't tell you one player on the UCLA team ever except for Troy Aikman. Troy Aikman. Jeez, I don't even know his name. Troy Aikman went to UCLA. That's the only UCLA football player that I can name right now. And yet, I live, you know, it's, people find out I live in Pasadena. You know, there's the Rose Bowl. It's the thing that's most famous for. So it's also a little bit, a little nod to Keith Jackson, my fellow Washington State University graduate to this sort of thing and say, we're overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. So that's what that's all about. Well, the fact of the matter is I'm currently overlooking the historic Rose Bowl. I've done it a couple of times, but you know what? This is kind of fun. It's a, it's exactly my kind of day right now. It's a very Pacific Northwesty kind of day. It's, it's cloudy. It's cool. It's a little damp. And I'm loving it. It's long sleeve weather here in Southern California, which, you know, take it from last week when it was over 100 degrees at Game One of the World Series, and I give me this weather any day of the week. Um, I'm. This is almost becoming the daily podcast again because of the number of shows that I've posted, and I'm also making up for a little bit of lost time because there were some days, there were like two weeks where I didn't record anything and because of stuff that's going on in my personal life, which I'd rather not bring up here. But at the same time, I'm making sure I'm at least averaging it out and we're enjoying this postseason together. So, last night happened... You know, you stop and think about when you think about all-time great World Series, there has to be a cumulative effect. You could have games that were absolute classics and games that people remember forever. But when you have a series where there's more than one great game and they build up and there's a sort of one builds to the next, builds to the next, that's when you start realizing, oh, I'm watching an all-time great World Series. For example... When the the best World Series that your pal Sully ever watched, I stand by is the 1991 World Series between Minnesota and Atlanta. And each game, there was, there was a one-run game that the Twins won at home, and then there was a, an extra inning game 
that was won on a single by Mark Lemke. Then there was another wild game four, which ended at a, with a collision at home plate. Then you had the one blowout, and then you had the game that went into extra innings and Kirby Puckett jumping up, making that catch and hitting the walk-off homer. And then you had the classic finale, which was 0-0, spectacular pitching by Smoltz, the the absolute legacy of Jack Morris going 10 shutout innings in Game 7 of the World Series, and finally Gene Larkin singling home Dan Gladden to win it in the bottom of the 10th. It was a spectacular finale to what was a great series. And the other, the other greatest World Series I ever saw was 2001, which on this day in 2001 was the day that George W. Bush threw out the first pitch in the wake of the September 11th attacks. And it was, you had, you know, the first two games were actually kind of one-sided for Arizona, but you had a very tight game three where the Yankees won by one run, then you had the Tino Martinez home run and the Derek Jeter home run in extra innings for Game 4. The Scott Brocious home run, a great performance by Kurt Schilling in Game 4. Uh, Brocious homers, the rally in extra innings that scored, um, uh, sorry, was it, uh, who, who did it, who, I think it was Chuck Knobloch got the game-winning hit in extra innings. Um, and then you had... Uh, the, you know, the Game 6 blowout, and then the Game 7, which was a back-and-forth affair, and finally ended with the Diamondbacks doing what looked like was impossible, and that was rallying off of Rivera. It was that it was one game, then the next game, then the next game. I'm doing this, writing this book about the 1972 postseason, and every single game in that postseason was another close game, another close game. This was a walk-off game. This had a big, huge error. This had a wild pitch. And so it's when it builds up and it's cumulative is when you start to have the classic. You know, the, the 1986 World Series, we all remember because of the Game 6 and the Red Sox collapsed, but there were some really dull games in that series. There was a one-run game, and Game 7 was more exciting than the final score would indicate. But there were some clunkers in that series as well. You know, it has that one spectacular game. The 2011 World Series had a couple really good close games and a come-from-behind rally by the Rangers and Game 6, which is still one of the greatest World Series games I ever saw in my life. Yet... It missed out because Game 7 was a bit of a dud in 2011. Last year, you had a bunch of pretty good games between the Indians and the Cubs, and then you had that wild seventh game that is one for the ages that made the rest of the other good games in the series look like build-up to that. Well, this we've had some absolute Coco for Coco Puffs classics. Stop and think about this for a second. You had a game where Dallas Keuchel and Clayton Kershaw in game one faced off. It was a fast-as-hell game, you know, less than two and a half hours long, and each team scored all their runs with home runs. Two-run home run in the sixth or seventh inning put the Dodgers ahead for good, and it was a tight ball game right down to the wire. And the best that that game can hope for is to be the fourth most exciting game of this series. You had a game that is 
was 1-1 in the ninth inning, where one guy was throwing a no-hitter into the sixth, and another guy was dominating, retiring 14 batters in a row. And the Dodgers went on a wild ninth-inning rally to burst through and, and break the tie to win a game that was a lot closer than the final 6-2 game would ever indicate. And guess what? The best that that game can ever hope for, the best if everything goes its way, is it will get the bronze for most exciting game. You had a game two where everyone was hitting home runs. I think I hit two home runs. You had the best reliever in the National League let up a game-tying home run. You had extra inning home runs. You had, what, how many extra, what, five extra inning home runs were smacked in, 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 in one game? And you could make a valid argument that that game that came down to the final pitch and that amazing at-bat is the second-best game in this series because of what happened last night. Now, you, now, what, you could look at last night as a train wreck, as pitchers who are totally gassed, basically throwing pumpkins up there and having the snot hit out of the ball. You can also make the case, and I heard Buster Olney and Keith Law mention this, I thought the same thing, is that the decision to pull Hill in the game two after only 60 pitches is coming back to haunt the Dodgers because they had to have you know, super reliance on the bullpen extra in game in game two when they only got 60 pitches out of their starter and Darvish couldn't make it out of the second inning. And there's, they had to rely on their relievers deep into game four. So by the time they got to game five, everyone's just cooked. Now, imagine, imagine, let's just say I'm Superman. I spin the world backwards and I show up to you and I say, you know, spin back time and show up to you before game five of the World Series, and I say the Dodgers are going to score three runs before the Astros come to bat. They are going to have, they're going to give Clayton Kershaw seven runs to play with, and in the end, they will score 12 runs in a game that is started by Clayton Kershaw. Okay. I, I think every single Dodger fan in the world with exhale, thinking, well, Kershaw can hold them to 11. And here we are. No lead is safe in that game. No lead. Not even up by three in the ninth inning with a totally demoralized Dodger team. And the, the, the Dodgers still came back with Puig's little flick home run and then finally the game-tying hit in the top of the ninth. When that happened, when the Dodgers tied the game in the top of the ninth, I'm sitting next to my mother-in-law watching the game. You know, like you do. And when that ball went up the middle and the tying run came in to score, I burst out laughing with like a <laughs> Like I sounded like the Joker. I sounded like I was losing my goddamn mind. Sorry, Ray. And the reason I did was because I was finding this game to be so funny. That in my head, I thought to myself, all these teams are wearing out their pitchers. 
What if this goes 15 or 16 innings? What the hell are they going to do? They may have to start bringing position players, but they can't because there are no more position players left. You would see, like, you know, Brandon McCarthy and Francisco Liriano, the two Maytag repairmen of each team, basically would have been, all right, you've got to go the rest of the game, both of you. And it just kept going. And it's funny, when you see a game, what people are going to remember, the highlight that people are going to remember, they're going to see the home runs, they're going to remember the home runs hit, um, certainly the one by... Uh, Guriel and Altuve and Ballinger and Springer and uh, Puig. They'll show those clips. They'll show the base hit up the middle and the top of the ninth to tie the game. And then they'll show the walk-off hit by Bregman and Fisher, who had, that was his first ever World Series appearance, who came in as a pinch runner uh, and coming in and if they had not had him in there was no way he would have beaten that throw home it would have been McCann would have been lumbering uh and him sliding in the celebration that's what people are going to remember but remember these games the final outcomes of each of these games and what we remember is basically an equation of events this leads to this leads to this Basically, all of existence, whether it's the final score of that game last night or the indictments handing down right now to all those people or the formation of this hill I'm standing on looking over the Rose Bowl, all these things are the end results of chain reactions of events. And we remember the big ones, but the small ones can contribute just as much. I stopped and I thought about some of the events that like the casual viewer may not think about at the end when the final score is 13 to 12 in 10 innings. I started thinking about the fifth inning when the Dodgers had they'd coughed up the lead but then got it right back and Kershaw was laboring and it was clear he had nothing and he had those those at bats, I know there was. They just uh, the. I think it was uh, was it Bregman and and Springer. I don't remember off the top of my head, but they 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 just kept going and going. And he wound up walking one, and he kept going and foul ball and foul ball and foul ball, and he walked the other. And they had no choice but to bring in Medea, Kenta Medea, who led up the home run to Altuve that tied the game. And I started thinking, imagine how the whole complexion of the game would have changed if one of those foul balls was popped up or a swing and a miss or chopped into the ground and the Dodgers get out of that inning 7-4 to four, and you don't need to bring in Medea at that point and you don't need to face Altuve with the, as the tying run at the plate. The decision to bring in Morrow was so stupid because he was gassed. And I even turned to my mother before it happened and said, why are they doing this? They finally they got the lead back. And one pitch, he threw one pitch and, gave the, and tied the game. Morrow threw a total of six pitches, two of them for homers, two of them were super hard hit as, you know, as base hits. One was a wild pitch and one was a strike. 
I mean, it was so fast, the unraveling of Morrow, who was gassed. And again, that goes back to game two. If you didn't let the starter go you know, longer into the game, you're not using these pitchers and gassing them out. And then you saw that, you know, uh, Singrani came in and pitched a little bit better. Nobody pitched particularly well, but imagine if you went back and you thought like, okay, what if you didn't use Morrow at that point? What if you went to somebody else at that point instead of Brandon Morrow, who could not have done a worse job giving up all those runs without recording a single out? And then you think about the hit by pitch, which I guarantee you nobody was talking about. But Kenley Jansen, the Dodgers' best reliever, had worked his way out of the ninth, had two outs and nobody on, and McCann hit a, that, that deep drive, which looked like it was going to be a walk-off homer, and then he hit him, and then let up a walk, and then let up the, the single to break and I was thinking about that hit pitch. He was thinking about that hit by pitch because I was thinking, man, if he gets out of that inning, Dodger bats are coming up. They probably rally. The way the game is going, they probably rally. And who knows what would have happened and who knows if anyone had any gas left in the tank. But that hit by pitch, those walks by Kershaw, the decision to bring in Morrow, when you have a game which it's been one run, each one of those decisions, each one of those moments is a moment that comes back and haunts the team. The way that they've been hitting, you can't afford to hit Brian McCann with two strikes, two outs, and nobody on in the bottom of the 10th. You can't afford to turn to Brandon Morrow because he's been great. Brandon Morrow's been wonderful, but he's also out of gas. You can't say the first time in your life you're going to pitch three games in a row is with the World Series on the line. And this is not about machismo. This is not about the will to win. I have no doubt that Brandon Morrow wanted that ball and wanted to throw the shit out of it. Sorry, Ray. And that he wanted to dominate. And he's been wonderful and he wanted to keep doing that. And there comes a point where you got to say, do you know what? That's great. You're not going to be able to do it. I mean, you got to give tons of credit to Houston. Tons of credit that they didn't stop. And you got to give tons of credit to Los Angeles. They didn't stop. Neither of these two teams they, they just could not be denied. And eventually, just the law of averages of a hit by, hit by pitch, a walk, and you know, a, a hit to left field that if McCann was still on base would not have been a game winner, but because they had pinch runner Fisher on base, it became a game winner. And that's the difference what we have here. And that's what we're looking at. And I, I'll be honest with you. I will be absolutely stunned if the Astros don't win game six. They have arrested and ready Verlander. And Verlander knows that his legend will be cemented with a great game. And with the way the Astros' bullpen is going, who the hell do you have closed that game? 
I heard some people saying, and, and they said it on the Baseball Tonight podcast, they were saying McCullers should close the game, but I would say no. I would have McCullers start game seven. I would keep McCullers and Mothball saying, if we have a game seven, McCullers going to start it. Here's my plan with Verlander. I have him pitch until his arm comes out of his socket because he's not pitching game seven. So you stay out there unless he gets hammered. Unless he gets rocked, who would you rather have? Verlander at 70% or Giles or Davinsky? He's gassed. You know, McHugh, he's gassed. The only one who isn't gassed is Francisco Liriano, the one pitcher who hasn't pitched in this World Series yet. Hell, have him close. He's rested. Why not? No one else is working out. Verlander has shown he can go nine. He did so against the Yankees. I mean, the way the bullpens look, I'd say, here, here's the ball. You're going to pitch until this game's over. In fact, you may pitch after the game's over. If the Astros win, I still want you to go out there and give me two more innings during the champagne celebration. That should, I mean, Ver, it should be Verlander. Verlander's our only pitcher available today. Unless, of course, by the way, this series is going, he's going to get rocked. He's going to get rocked. And it makes me think about something. It makes me think about people who always bring up Koufax and Gibson and the pitchers who would dominate a postseason of the past. And I almost want to poo-poo when I start hearing about that. And I'll tell you why. Kershaw's going to get a lot of shit. Ray, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm swearing a lot. Ray is one of my great listeners. He thinks I swear too much. That's why I apologize to him every time I swear. But, yeah, this is, this is a game that's going to have some swearing in it. Kershaw gets a lot of shit, and he's going to get a lot of shit for how he pitched yesterday. They gave him a 4 nothing lead, and he couldn't get out of the fifth. And he got absolutely trounced. And people will point to that saying when the Dodgers needed him, And a win by Kershaw would have meant being up three games to two, heading back to L.A., and being in a position where Verlander could not clinch the World Series for Houston, and he couldn't do it. Okay, that's true. But do you know what? Kershaw also pitched damn well against the Cubs, including in the clinching game. And he pitched damn well in the first game of the World Series. And he pitched well enough to win game one, against the Diamondbacks, where, yeah, he let up a bunch of homers, but also he had a ton of runs to play with. He's had two or three really good starts this postseason. And when you look at Bob Gibson's most dominating postseasons, let's say 67, when he dominated the Red Sox. Do you have any starts he had that postseason? Three. He had three. Now, I know they didn't have multiple rounds, but do you know what? We've never had to see the great pitchers of back then pitch a best-of-five series, then a best-of-seven series, and then best-of-seven series against the elite teams of the game. Kershaw had to play against a red-hot Arizona team, the defending world champion Cubs who were on a roll since the end of the All-Star break, and the 102-win Houston Astros. Koufax never did that. 
Gibson never did that. The great pitchers of yore never did that. Sandy Koufax dominated the 1963 World Series, the one immortalized because R.P. McMurphy wanted to watch it and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know what? He made two starts. He made two starts. He was great in both of them. He was great in both of them. He made two starts. The postseason's a different animal. Kershaw has had a tremendous amount of quality starts in the postseason and came out of the bullpen to clinch a division series in 2016. But he will never get the credit because his sample size is bigger. How many postseason starts did Bob Gibson have total? Three, I'm going to do this from memory. Three in 1964, three in 1967, three in 1968. Yes, he threw complete games in all but one of them. Yes, he absolutely dominated in almost all of them. Yep, got it. I'm not going to disagree with anything you just said, imaginary voice in my body. How many starts has Kershaw had this postseason? One, two, he's had five. He's had five in this postseason. This postseason, he has had more than half the number of starts that Bob Gibson had in his entire career. It's a different animal now. And you're changing up with different types of teams that you face. You know, it, let's take a, in the the... St. Louis Cardinals dominated the Red Sox in 1967. They won in seven games. It was Bob Gibson dominated the Red Sox. Well, how would he have done if he had played against, let's say, the San Francisco Giants and the, of, of Juan Marichal and, and Gaylord Perry and Willie Mays and Willie McCovey in the first round? And then the second round played, I don't know, the Pirates led by you know, Roberto Clemente and Willie Stargell, and then had to play the Red Sox. How would it have turned out? He may have done it. He may have cut through them like a knife through butter, the way that Madison Bumgarner did in 2014. But do you know what? I, I want Madison Bumgarner now to be the standard of postseason excellence, not Koufax, not Gibson that he was dominant against four different opponents. Actually, he lost his one game against the Washington Nationals, but he pitched well. He just The team didn't support him around him. Against Pittsburgh, a very good Pittsburgh team, Washington, a very good St. Louis team, and the Royals. That's the sort of thing that you should look at more than one of the great pitchers of yore. And Kershaw, if you, if you want to cherry-pick out his two or three best starts of each postseason, his two or three best moments of each postseason, you'll see that he's had a bunch of pretty good postseasons if you edit out the bad games. Because he's had more games to pitch. He's had more games to play. Last year, he made four starts. This year, he's made five starts. He made four starts and one relief appearance. So in the last two years, Clayton Kershaw has pitched in more postseason games than Bob Gibson did in his entire career. It's a different animal. And it's going to be his resume. It's going to be on his legacy. And it's somewhat unfair. But the Hall of Fame legacy of Justin Verlander can be written and written in stone with a victory in game six. And he can do so on Halloween 
And with the Astros bullpen in complete disarray, he can probably be asked to go nine. And if he's the man with his arms up in the air, clinching the World Series, there's your, there's your highlight for your Hall of Fame speech. You know, I'm kind of obsessed with bullpen closers and multiple people getting saves. If someone other than uh, Ken Giles or Lance McCullers Jr. clinches the final pitch of the World Series for the Houston Astros, it'll be the first time that you had a team win a World Series and have three different pitchers throw the clinching pitch of each postseason series. Oh, you've had situations you've had three different things happen in each postseason series, like when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004, they clinched the division series with a home run by Ortiz, Alan Embry threw the final pitch of the ALCS because Keith Folk was gassed, and Keith Folk threw the final pitch of the World Series. And the Giants had Bumgarner throw the final pitch of the wildcard game and the World Series, Santiago Casilla threw the final pitch of the Division Series and the World Series. Uh, the NLCS was clinched by a home run by Travis Ishikawa. But on that weird note, no team has ever turned to three different pitchers to clinch each round of a postseason. And the Astros, because they're not going to hand the ball to Ken Giles with the postseason on the line. And I do believe they're going to hold Lance McCullers Jr. to start Game 7 if need be. I certainly would. So that means that the chances of Giles or McCullers throwing the final pitch is practically zero. Giles threw the final pitch of the Division Series. McCullers threw the final pitch of the ALCS. So if the Astros win it, chances are a third pitcher will clinch the World Series. And I have a weird feeling it will be Verlander. Now, if any World Series deserves to go seven games, it's this one. I'm rooting for the Dodgers because I'm here in Los Angeles County. It's fun. Uh, Also, I'm going to be trick-or-treating with my kids tomorrow. I'm going to be, you know, my kids are going, this is a big night, and your pal Sully is going to be trick-or-treating and checking the phone going, geez, what's the score now? 5-2? 5-2. Okay, yeah. And, you know, when it's all done, I'm going to be watching the last few innings at home. Okay? But, you know, if you're not an Astros fan, if you're an Astros fan, if you're like friend of the podcast, Richard Perez, of course, you want to win game six and you want it to be a cakewalk. I've been there seeing my team win a cakewalk and a clincher. The clincher in, in 2004 and the clincher in 2013 against the Cardinals weren't really that close games. And there's this great sense of building up and counting down the outs and finally winning it. The clincher against the Colorado Rockies in 2007 was actually a one-run game, but it never really felt that that close. That's neither here nor there. The idea of seeing the Astros win the World Series, if you're an Astros fan, is obviously will be the greatest moment in Houston sports history. Uh, this is already the greatest Astros team in their history. It's an amazing moment for the city of Houston that they, as they are one win away from the World Series. If you are not an Astros fan, and if you are not a San Francisco Giant fan, you've got to be rooting for the Dodgers. You've got to be. 
because this series deserves a Game 7. Remember what I was talking about cumulative at the beginning of this podcast? Cumulatively, this series needs that finale. It needs it. It needs to have that back and forth Game 7, this series can go either way moment. When There have been some great World Series that have only been six games. I'm specifically remembering the 1992 World Series between Toronto and Atlanta, of which many, like, games two, three, four, and six were all absolute nail-biting classics. And yet, it's not considered an all-time great. Why? Because there was no game seven. The Blue Jays held on and won game six and won that series four games to two. Even though the, the, the Braves were on the verge of this and on the verge of that, and they came back, they were one strike away from losing the World Series. They rallied to send it to extra innings, and they rallied again, and it came up one run short. And because of that, that World Series, is it mentioned in the same breath of some of the other all-time classics? If that World Series had a Game 7 that was back and forth and back and forth like the rest of it, people would remember that as an all-time great. This World Series deserves to be an all-time great. This World Series deserves to not only have that Game 7, but to have Game 7 be like the one last year where you're going, oh man, I've got no clue who's going to wind up in front of this one. Think about that Game 7 last year. Now, I was rooting for the Indians for a lot of reasons. A lot of people were rooting for the Cubs. But by the end, I think all of America was going, man, whoever wins this deserves this. And in the end, the Cubs came up just that tiny bit more than the Indians. And you had a Cubs championship. It could very could have been one uh, Kipnis line drive away from being an Indians championship. It was just that the, the margin of error was that close. And this World Series between these two teams that just will not give up deserves a seventh game. So unless you're an Astros fan or a really, really bitter Giants fan, you've got to be rooting for a Game 7 here. Do you know why? Because it's cumulative. Don't you want to say you witnessed something great? That's the great timelessness of baseball. Someone said, posted something on someone's Facebook feed and said, man, it's been a while since we've seen a World Series this great. And I responded, yeah, this is the best World Series since 2016. You want to be able to say, hey, we've seen a bunch of classics. And if there's a Game 7 of this World Series, think about this too. 2011, the classic series between the Cardinals and the Rangers. 2014, a wild seven-game series ending with the Madison Bumgarner Relief Classic with the Giants and the Royals. 2016, the marathon between the Cubs and the Indians in extra innings of Game 7. And if this one, that would be four, count them, four World Series that went seven and were classics. This could be one of those great decades of baseball watching in the postseason. I would argue it already is. Even with some of the shorter series having some great classic wild games along the way. Don't you feel great when you're in the middle of something and you know you're watching something great that people will remember forever? 
That's why I started chuckling. Because I knew, man, this is so much fun. And it is. So go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Standing on a hill overlooking the Rose Bowl in cloudy, kind of cool Pasadena. This has been the Sully Baseball Podcast for the 30th day of October 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Let's go seven. And you can call me Sully.